This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. From Christianity Today, you are listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. I am joined again today by Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on our show, the Pope approves blessings for same-sex couples, the Colorado Supreme Court kicks Trump off the ballot, and Brian Houston, former pastor of Hillsong in Australia, announces his comeback in 2024. Stay with us. All right, so earlier this week, the Vatican issued a new rule for priests that allows for the blessings of same-sex couples. This is not a surprise for a lot of observers who've argued for some time that Pope Francis was looking to soften the church's teaching on same-sex marriage. To be sure, this does not mean that the Catholic Church is going to be conducting same-sex weddings, endorsing same-sex weddings, and according to the statement, is not changing its official position on the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman, but it does mean that in informal settings, priests can offer blessings to same-sex couples. Cardinal Fernandez, who wrote the rule, said it's precisely in this context, meaning this sort of informal context, that one can understand the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations and same-sex couples without officially validating their status or changing in any way the church's perennial teaching on marriage. Russell, what do you make of this rule and the reaction that we're seeing from the Catholic Church, from priests around the world and commentators around the world about it? Somewhere from the grave, Henry VIII is saying, now you decide to relax the blessing of irregular couples. I think that part of the problem with this, and Rustout that wrote about this earlier this week, is that there's a confusion, but it seems to be an intentional ambiguity that's a pattern that keeps coming here. And I've defended Pope Francis before, including to Ross for years, but this doesn't make sense to me really at all because obviously they're not changing their view on marriage. They're not performing same-sex marriage unions, but they are going to be allowing blessings of same-sex unions. And the argument that's being used is to say, but this is just a way of saying these are people who want to get closer to God. I understand that. I understand that Pope Francis is making a big emphasis on accommodation, on meeting people where they are and, and moving them along. That would make sense if it came to blessing individuals involved, but blessing the union itself while at the same time saying that the activity is sinful doesn't make sense to me. And I think one of the things that's really disturbing to a lot of Catholics, wherever they stand on these issues, is it looks to me as a lifelong Baptist, what we would do when we're putting something off on a committee 
because we don't want to deal with it right now. Somebody keeps bringing resolutions against Freemasons. Nobody really wants to take up the issue of masonry because that tends to bring out the kooks. So you put a committee to study it. That's what this looks like, except it's with something that is one of the most significant divides in, in global life right now. I think this is not going to fix any sort of problem. It's going to lead to further confusion and will have to be addressed one way or the other. Yeah, I definitely agree that there is an intentional ambiguity that's a little bothersome about this. As we've been seeing on social media, when a priest comes out and says, I was proud to bless the union of Bill and Bob, there is an implication that this marriage is a sacrament and is therefore blessed. So the general public is not thinking about the nuance of blessing so that all people can experience communion versus blessing as in we will marry you. All they see is this kind of general glad path to blessing. The other challenge that I'm having is we have opened the door to blessing same-sex unions in Catholic churches, but we still have not made any moves about women in Catholic churches. And I know there was a, a great article in The New Yorker about Pope Francis doing some unprecedented things, allowing women to be a part of sessions they weren't a part of before. I know some very devout Catholic women, but they would never see themselves as one day waking up to an announcement from the Pope that they were suddenly okay to be priest. So I'm wrestling with that tension. Okay for same-sex marriage. Not okay for women who have been serving and really don't have questions about their sexuality. They're just wanting to fulfill the calling of God. One of the ironies of this is that the bureau of the Vatican that this comes out of is called the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith. This used to be referred to as the Inquisition. <laughs> this was the Inquisition. And what's interesting is that there's been conflict between Pope Francis and the head of the Dicastery since he came in because their job, their primary job is to be the guardians of the doctrines of the church. Francis fired the head of that Dicastery last year and put in his own guy. And and then in the sort of preamble to this statement, Victor Manuel Fernandez, he says, our work must foster, along with an understanding of the church's perennial doctrine, the reception of the Holy Father's teaching, meaning, meaning the Pope. And this is another thing I saw a, a Catholic writer point out and say, hey, that's a major change that the dicastery, again, <laughs> it's like the Spanish Inquisition, the dicastery is saying our job is not just to guard the church's doctrine, but to support the doctrine of the Pope. And so this idea that you move in the direction of Pope Francis's teaching and kind of destabilize these core ideas of Catholic faith, that just strikes me there's something unhealthy about this. And because even if one concedes the Pope is sitting in the office of Peter, even if you accept apostolic succession that way, the Apostle Peter gets things wrong a lot, even in the text of Scripture. Galatians 1 and 2 is an argument between Paul and Peter where Paul tells him, you're walking out of step with the gospel, and Peter is the one who has to repent because he's getting something wrong. Now, the Pope is not infallible in Catholic teaching except when speaking ex cathedra, which almost never happens. But this is a kind of accommodating of the Pope's murky, wanting to move in the direction of the German Catholics, but without actually doing it and creating a crisis in the whole church. That just, it just, 
It doesn't make sense. I can only imagine Martin Luther's response, <laughs> excommunicated as he is, yeah. But I have a great deal of respect for Catholicism, for the amount of charity work that the Catholic Church does, for the educational systems and all of those things. It does break my heart a little if we were to think that this could cause a split or division in the Catholic Church. Do you sense that the pushback against the Pope's declaration is going to cause a split? Or will this be just, for example, in Jewish uh, traditions where there's dissension and there's disagreement, but we're still all in the same family? I don't think this will be a split, but I do think there's a destabilizing era that we're in really uh, across the institutions and the Catholic Church is certainly in that. So I think you take this with the questions of the synod process, you take that with the questions of communion for divorced and remarried people, the pressures that are coming from the Germans, and also the fact that if you look at where the liberalizing forces are pushing hard in the Catholic Church tend to be the places that are in the most decline in terms of Catholic church attendance. That's I mean, the, the most cynical reading of why Germany is wanting to move in, in such uh, liberalizing directions when it comes to marriage, with divorce, remarriage, with this, with all of it, is because the government funds churches in Germany on the basis of how many members you have. And so that's the most cynical reading here. But the places where the church is actually growing and thriving tend to be the most orthodox. And if you think about it, it makes sense because one of the reasons why people choose to either be or to remain Catholic is to say, we have a 2,000-year church tradition. God has spoken in the way that the way that Revelation is unfolding in the teaching of the church. And so these sorts of abrupt changes or head fakes that might be changes, that creates further instability. And I don't know if it will hold together long term. I just don't think this will be the issue. You read it, and it seems as though the rule anticipates a priest visiting someone's home or somebody coming to see the priest about issues going on in their lives or whatever. And in the moment, there's this sort of spontaneous, let me bless you, pray for you as you go kind of thing. I was struck, though, that it felt like within minutes of this thing coming out, there were photos in the news stories about it and all over social media of priests, some pretty prominent priests here in the United States did this, actually, where you have a couple dressed very nicely in the front of a church, holding hands with a priest in front of them, extending a hand and giving them a blessing. It looks a whole lot like a wedding. And so it just struck me that immediately that in a sense, like certain elements of this guidance are going to be meaningless, especially for the casual observer, the casual churchgoer, someone who just hears about their friend getting a blessing from a priest or they say, hey, we got married, check out the pictures. Mm -hmm. And there's this picture of that they took the next day when they went to to their church and the, the priest blessed them and stuff, it's going to be almost indistinguishable functionally for a lot of people. Part of what that got me to, though, is, again, back to, hey, why are we Protestants, is there's an element to the formal clergy-laity distinction, priesthood-laity distinction here, that I think makes this a lot more complicated than it it does for a lot of other places. I know many pastors who are very orthodox on all of these kinds of issues, who find themselves in situations where someone who's a neighbor or who casually attends the church and is gay and is married invites somebody into the home and he'll pray for them or he'll pray for their kids or he'll he or she'll just show up and give a blessing or whatever. And it's it doesn't impart what 
the formality of this sort of priesthood distinction does, where you do have this thing where it's, is it a sacrament? And if it's a sacrament, then what's the difference at this point? Well, and because if, if, you're, if you go into the home of Janet Nestor and they say, will you pray for us and have a blessing for us? And you pray for Janet and Esther. I think any, any expression of the Christian faith would see that as fine. That's a different thing than putting a blessing upon the union of Janet and Esther. In the same way that if your Muslim neighbor, Muhammad, says, hey, will you bless my home and my family and pray for me? That's one thing. If he says, will you bless my pilgrimage to Mecca? That complicates it more. (laughs) So I I think that's the distinction that's really being confused here in a way that's ultimately going, you just aren't, I just don't see how you're going to be able to hold together sacramentality of marriage, define the way the Catholic Church teaches it, and this, because it looks a lot like the way that the church tended to get around the view of permanence of marriage with an annulment process that is kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. If you are divorced and remarried and you're a Kennedy or something along those lines, yeah, you can get an annulment, which is to say you never were validly married. But most people, when they're looking at that, say, oh, I see what you're doing there. You're just trying to do something without saying we were previously wrong. You can say the same about contraception and the use of contraceptives. You're not, people understand what the position of the Catholic Church is, but they're, as you said earlier, they're not going to confessional saying, Father, forgive me because I've taken birth control. So it is a wink nod, and it does bring up the issue of depth of faith and commitment in general. We can stand in our Protestant areas and say, this is why I'm not Catholic. Mm -hmm. But across the board, at the end of the day, it is still about the depth of your commitment to faith. There are so many what is considered marginal Catholics that could care less about something like this. Mm -hmm. They are going to church to baptize their babies or to get communion, but they are not committed. And the same can be said about marginal Protestants who are just going to church because Easter is on the way or Christmas is here or grandma's in town, and they could care less. The majority of the world is marginal at best when it comes to faith. I think it's causing grief to me because I want this to be more significant. I want every Catholic everywhere to be talking about this and wrestling with this, but I'm just not convinced that it matters to them. I was in, I think it was 2014, preaching at the Vatican with Pope Francis. And one of the things that we were talking about was marriage. And you had a group of people from various different religious backgrounds there. And I remember having a conversation with some leading Latter-day Saints and saying, "Are you, is the LDS Church really going to stay where you are on marriage because all it takes is a revelation from a prophet to everything, for everything <laughs> to change? Uh, at the same time, the Catholics were saying to me, yeah, but look at mainline Protestantism. This is what happens when you don't have an authority and a, a teaching magisterium. And now... Uh, People can look at this and say, yeah, this is what happens when you have a very uh, strong pope, but who wants to move in a different direction. The truth of it is any system is vulnerable to human beings going in the direction that we want to go. Our Catholic friends would say, those of you who believe in sola scriptura, that doesn't settle anything because you have 14,000 denominations. 
And we could say your idea of papal authority and papal headship doesn't solve anything either because you end up, at least on this issue, having 14,000 denominations within the Roman Catholic Church. It, It takes not just the systems, it takes the people who are willing to say, let's do the hard work of grappling with what the Word of God says. I remember years ago, Russell, you and I had a conversation. I think it was around the time of the Obergefell decision. And I remember asking you, what comes next? Like, how much does this create jeopardy for conservative evangelicals legally, like legal jeopardy for discrimination around these issues and all of this? And you, one of the things you told me at the time is you said, this is a time for evangelicals to be really thankful for the Pope because he can't change. And that creates a bulwark where we're not going to be alone, those of us who hang in there on this. Any change of opinion on that ruling at this point? Yeah. I mean, I wrote an article for First Things that argued that evangelicals weren't going to change on this issue, and largely because and, – and, and I said, if we were by ourselves, I think evangelicalism would change on this because of the entrepreneurial, market-driven sort of approach to it. But the fact that the Catholic Church – with a sacramental view of marriage and 2,000 years of tradition can't change on it. Uh, You can't sneak your way into it. You, You have to intentionally say we're moving in this direction. What I don't think I counted on at the time was just how active the Protestant principle is within the Roman Catholic Church. I knew that was the case at the grassroots, but how much the Protestant principle was at work in the actual hierarchy. And that's where the tension is. And so I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't think that any time in our lifetime will you be seeing same-sex marriages happening at your local Catholic diocese. But I do think what you're going to start to see is my mom and dad, my mom was Catholic, my dad was Baptist. When they were married, it was a big deal to work that through on her side, marrying a Protestant, especially marrying a Protestant who insisted we're raising our children Protestant. That was a big deal. It wouldn't be a big deal in almost any place now. And I think that might be the cultural direction, but without the actual teaching changing. Inside the Catholic Church, is there a chance the pendulum swings the other way again with the next pope? If you look at what the College of Cardinals looks like now, it's like the Supreme Court changing. You have such a large number of cardinals who are appointed by Pope Francis. And it seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that Pope Francis is intentionally choosing people, and we've seen this even in some of the moves that that he has made around the world, intentionally choosing people who are in line with his sort of reformist uh, direction. So I would be really surprised if the pendulum swung really dramatically next time around. I honestly don't know. I got a sense that the selection of Pope Francis was a nod to the rest of the majority world, meaning sub-Saharan. He was selected from Latin America, and I think that was an intentional decision to do more in terms of global representation where the Catholic Church is growing. 
If this trend continues and if the selection of the next pope comes from some of these sub-Saharan areas, I do think they're a bit more conservative than we are, certainly more conservative than Westerners. I think a pope from that region, even an Indian pope, would be far more conservative just in Mm -hmm. terms of faith and culture than someone else from a Western uh, society. All right. Also this week, just in time for your festive holiday gatherings with extended family. The Colorado <laughs> Supreme Court. Sorry, yes. You can pick up the sarcasm already. The Colorado Supreme Court, based on a provision of the 14th Amendment adopted after the Civil War, which bars people who have engaged in insurrection from holding office, has removed Trump from the ballot in the state of Colorado. Cue all the to-be-expected reactions on right and left. Great celebration on the left and great consternation on the right. Russell, very respected legal scholars, floated this idea. What do you make of this? I agree with the Colorado Supreme Court. I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the actual legal process. I doubt that the Supreme Court is going to uphold this, but probably because what they're going to do is to pair this decision with the question of presidential immunity and rule for Trump in this one and against him on the other. That would be my guess, just given the makeup of the court. But I agree with Jonathan Last, who pointed out this week, the reaction of in almost Every action of accountability when it comes to Donald Trump is hand-wringing over, we can't do this because it's going to empower him. And when it comes to these issues of constitutional interpretation, the issue is not whether it empowers him or disempowers him. It's whether this is right. And unleashing a violent mob on the United States Capitol to stop a constitutional transfer of power is, it seems to me, clearly out of line with the 14th Amendment. And I think that's even more dangerous when you see, as of today, as as of the time that we're recording, he is truthing out, or whatever you call his social media network, the faces and addresses of the judges involved, which is this pattern of intimidation that has been happening. I think there are legitimate sorts of arguments to be made on both sides of the 14th Amendment, but what I don't think we should be doing is having the sense of we can't even start to talk about this because it's going to make his people mad and violent. We just, we've done that at every step of the way, and I don't think we can do it anymore. My initial reaction was, oh my gosh, this is going to cause so many problems. What we saw from all that happened in New York is even when he is caught doing something wrong and convicted of a crime, there is... There's, it's almost like it doesn't affect him. But I do applaud Colorado for making this decision. I'm waiting to see, will there be any other courageous states who will make the same decision? I'm not confident that they will. I do think that even in legal proceedings, people are thinking about what might this look like? And we're getting close to January 6th. I was in the grocery store the other day with people talking about making it a holiday. My first thought was, oh my God, am I safe here? But making also, January 6th a holiday? Yes, I'm in the grocery store. They were like, yeah, man, January 6th, we need to make that a holiday. We need to celebrate uh, and commemorate. This is in the grocery store. If we make it Capitol Policeman's Appreciation Day, I'm with you. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> is it? So worse fears played out. Worst fears played out. There's some secret underground movement to say, 
we don't need the Electoral College to make Donald Trump president. We don't even need any of the U.S. government to have our own leader or our own dictator. We will come around and we will make this happen. This worst fear. Now, it doesn't have any merit because we've got enough checks and balances in our justice system, prayerfully, to be able to counter something like that. But worst fears played out. Is this building that secret underground lull? That's And now we thought they were scared by January 6th. Wait until we do what's next. Next. I'm directionally with you in terms of my record on what I think of Donald Trump is pretty pretty clear, I think, at this point. But here's where you lose me. Because my problem with this ruling is, in principle, if you say to me this, anybody who called for or led an insurrection against the United States should be disqualified from office. Mm-hmm. I can stand up and applaud and say amen to that. That should just be a common sense thing that – Any voter should be able to make that decision. Where it gets tricky to me is if you put that into law, then all of a sudden, like anything else in the law, all those terms have to then be defined and defined in all these different ways. And the problem to me is, for instance, if the January 6th Jack Smith trial were already done and Trump were convicted, then to me, this ruling would also make perfect sense. What we're dealing with, though, I feel, and the the reason there's question around this, the reason it's ambiguous and goofy to me, is that we're still dealing with the downstream consequences of what I would say is the original sin of the post-Trump presidency, which was when Mitch McConnell got up in front of the Senate and said, yeah, this was awful, yeah, this was inexcusable, but we're going to let the legal system handle this from here, and we're not going to impeach. Had they convicted him in the Senate and kicked him out of office and barred him from office, this would all be over. And I don't believe, though there are a lot of people who would argue with me on this point. I'll put it positively. I think that if Mitch McConnell had wanted to make that decision and wanted to push in that direction, he could have gotten it through. He could have gotten the votes. They could have impeached him. But I think he genuinely thought – for the sake of our coalition, we're going to we're going to soft pedal this and just Trump's going to ride off into the sunset. He couldn't have, he didn't predict what would have happened. To me, that's the original sin of the era. And because of that, what it does is it means he wasn't convicted and kicked out of office. And so the idea that you're saying he's guilty of insurrection, to me the easiest defense for the Trump lawyers and the reason why I tend to agree with the evaluations of this that I've seen that say this thing's going to be bounced out of the Supreme Court nine to nothing faster than you you could even see is because there's nothing on the record at this point. There's nothing that says he is guilty of having done these things, caused insurrection, blah, 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 blah. And again, it all goes back to post-January 6th when there was this moment where they said, we're not going to hold him accountable for this. Yeah, but there's not been a civil proceeding ruling that Pope Francis is not an American citizen. If he runs for president this year, he's still constitutionally disqualified. That's the role of the courts is to look at this and to say the Constitution says a natural-born citizen – If you're born in the Panama Canal Zone, does that count as a natural-born citizen? Courts say, yeah. If you're born in Italy to Italian presidents, are you a natural-born citizen? No. And I think that's that's the question that is in front of us now. So I don't think it has – the argument that there's double jeopardy from the the Senate lack of conviction – 
is not really relevant to this question. I'm not saying it's a double jeopardy issue at all. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't think that argument makes any sense either. What I'm saying is there are the facts which are unprosecuted that they can point to. There are the facts of he did these things on January 6th. Mm -hmm. He did these things leading up to it. He denied the peaceful transferal of power and all that. There are all of those facts. The question, is it the court's job to prosecute judge and jury, all of that stuff through, and do the ruling all at once? We're skipping the step where that – like that is now – because the Senate didn't do it, it's now in Jack Smith's hands. If the Jack Smith trial were done and over with and he were found guilty, I think you've got an open and shut case. Yeah, but then what they would say is because the Jack Smith prosecution is not over insurrection. It's over fake electors, subverting constitutional processes, all of those things. It's not about the incitement of the insurrection itself, although that's an implication of it, but that's not what the prosecution is. So I think the, the actual analogy here is Trump gets elected in 2024 and in 2028 decides to run again. <laughs> and says, I'm perfectly qualified to run again because the election was stolen from me before. So we're going to terminate the Constitution, as he said before, in order for me to run. All of his people come in and say, why not humor him with this? The courts will have to come in and say, are you actually qualified to be on the ballot? And the court has no choice but to make that determination. And I think that the same thing is happening here. And I actually think... For all of the people who are, oh, this is the wrong time for this to be decided, this actually is the exactly right time for this to be decided. Rather than we come into November, Trump is elected president, and half the country are saying yeah, he's actually not president because he's not constitutionally qualified. To be clear, I would love to be wrong. One of the sort of reactions that I hear to all of this is people say things like, you don't what is it? You don't fight somebody who's breaking norms by breaking norms. And so the court shouldn't be getting involved in this just because it's Donald Trump. We don't. And I understand that argument. And I, I think there's a certain level of truth to that. The challenge is so much of what Trump has done in his time in public life and public office has broken norms that there aren't precedents for how do you respond to someone like this who's doing mm -hmm. these things in public. That's the part of me that has half an inch of the door open to this and goes, maybe, right? Because you're dealing with somebody who, in, in a sense, has committed unprecedented crimes and has been an unprecedented actor in the public sphere. You're not going to have, you know, five volumes of case law to pull from to figure out how do you deal with someone like this. To me, that's the half inch that's where, where the door is open. I just, and maybe this is my cynicism, I just look at it and go, I don't know how the Supreme Court holds up this ruling. I don't say any of this because I have any hopes for Donald Trump's return in 2024 at all. I just, it's one of those things where I wonder, is this Maybe it's worth trying everything. Maybe that's part of the argument is, look, you use every method you can if you genuinely believe the man is a threat to democracy, and which I do. I, I'm just not compelled. I'm not compelled by the argument at this point. I this don't think thing. it is you're using everything you can. I think it's actually the other way. I think the reluctance to have this even looked at in court is the same sort of process that's at work at every step of the way here, which is to say, ah, just leave this alone <laughs> right. and it'll go away. And this actually isn't breaking of norms. This is the court 
looking at a constitutional question that is contested and making a ruling. And if what the court rules is this isn't what the 14th Amendment is addressing, talking about those who led insurrection against the United States with the Confederate government who were not convicted either. If they say this doesn't fit with the 14th Amendment, then normal America is going to do what Al Gore did in 2000 and say, court has ruled, we're going forward. That's not norm breaking. That's what the norms are. Yeah. I do think we've missed the mark. I think there were opportunities to express outrage and to uphold the law and the Constitution previously many times before, and it just feels too late now. It just feels, I, I just, I cannot see even upholding constitutional law at this stage carrying any weight for him. I just feel like we have a character who is intent on tearing apart what this country is founded on. And I have very little confidence that any court, supreme or otherwise, will be able to hold him back. So I'm almost bracing for impact. What is this going to look like next? What mm -hmm. absurd thing is going to come out? How is this going to fuel their fire? And I know, Russell, you're saying we cannot pay attention to how people feel. We have to do what's right. Yes, completely agree. And the average American is all feelings and no real thought about what the law says. Yes, but the entire way that this country was set up is to say the law cannot be dependent upon mob reaction. And the minute that you have, you look at this, you go back and you look at the 19, from the fall of the Weimar Republic on into the late 1920s, 1930s. So many of these decisions to allow this nonsense evil to go on were because, A, we've got, they're not going to be able to do a lot. Just let him give his little speeches. And then also, let's just let this go for right now because it's not going to get any worse than it is. And then it is, and the time that it is, then you say, yeah, but let's just let this go because it's not going to be any worse than the next thing. And it just keeps, it keeps going. The very fact that if we had been having this conversation in 2015, 2017, 2019, hey, can somebody who unleashes a violent armed mob on the United States Capitol to, st to stop a constitutional process and who calls for the termination of the United States Constitution, would this person be a candidate for president of the United States? Everybody would have said, no, it's ridiculous. But here we are. <laughs> the moment I saw this news, what I actually thought was, there goes my Nikki Haley theory. Because by virtue of everything that's happened, every time something goes against him in the courts in the past, every time he's indicted, his support hardens. We'll see how the public responds. So, all right. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, 
You can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salaries Annual Membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Hi, I'm Charlie Peacock. And if you're enjoying this show, I think you'd love Music and Meaning a podcast where we go in-depth into the world of music, sharing evocative stories of crafting popular songs the whole world sings. We explore how music transcends mere sound, becoming a mirror to our times, a testimony to our shared humanity, and a sign and symbol of our deepest joys and needs. Join us and listen to Music and Meaning on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. All right. So earlier this week, Brian Houston, founder of the global megachurch Hillsong, announced that he and his wife plan to return to ministry online and with a church in 2024. Houston, of course, was the founder of Hillsong. He faced numerous controversies over the last several years. His father, Frank, was convicted of child sex abuse. Brian was accused of concealing it, though he was later acquitted in court. But he's also been connected to other Hillsong scandals related to financial mismanagement, misbehavior by other leaders. And he was subject to an internal investigation of his own conduct involving sleeping pills and incidents with women in the church. One thing after another with Houston. And so now it seems as though he's trying at this point to put the legal troubles behind him and return to ministry. This is something we have seen many times going back to people like Jimmy Swaggart, people like Mark Driscoll. Many pastors have a significant public fall for one reason or another and make their way back to ministry. Nicole, I'll put you on the spot. Do you have a sense of why it is when a, a leader like this has had this kind of public moral embarrassment and failure, they have a need to go back. What makes them come back? I have been really wrestling over this because I'm burdened by the fact that this is not new. This is Carl Lentz, as you mentioned already, Mark Driscoll. This is not new. And I think it represents this 
kind of addiction to uh, charisma and addiction to fame and this receptivity in the church. What strikes me most about this is not that a narcissistic leader would decide, I'm going to go at it again. I expect that. I expect that people who don't really know who they are, people who are so insulated with their own fame and have created circles around them of enablers, by the way, I expect that they're going to get up and say, I'm going to do it again. What is troubling is the fact that he will have a crowd. He will have followers. In the same way of the Mark Driscoll situation, he will have a chance at another mega church. That to me signifies there's something in the ground of Christians that says, yes, I know that this person did wrong, but I still like the results. And I know we've gone beyond the Trump situation, but in some ways it's a very similar kind of crowd effect that we are so attracted to what we think is the success of the leader, the appeal of the leader, that small part of ourselves that wants to be just like that, that we will follow broken leaders even when we know they are not fit to serve. And I think it brings up the question, how long is long enough even when we think about time away from ministry? A similar situation happened with Jamal Bryant, who was accused of multiple interactions with women and having babies out of wedlock. And I think he was out of the pulpit for just a matter of weeks, maybe months, and moved on to a next church. How long is long enough for a person to demonstrate a turnaround And we can't even ask that question because there's always going to be a crowd pushing them. Keep going. I will follow you. I will go wherever you lead. That's the troubling part for me about the crowd effect. Russell, what are your thoughts on this story? We're seeing another return, something you've seen as well. I don't think we should really talk about disqualification of Brian Houston because that will only make his supporters support him more. I'm just trolling you, Mike. <laughs> no, but I, 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 I don't think that's that. wrong. I never actually. said that. I didn't say that. I oh, do that think, is, though. That is not my objection to the Colorado <laughs> League, just to be clear. Okay. I do think the connection here mm-hmm. is that we're in this time where shamelessness actually is a superpower, and it actually mm. does work. Because one of the things that we've counted on for a long time is that People who are totally humiliated by their own exposure will actually have a sense of shame about mm-hmm. that. And if you look from if you look from situation after situation after situation, what you end up with is look at, for instance, Mark Driscoll. You have somebody who not only just gets up, leaves the complete devastation behind him, and plants another church, but who does that and who wants to be right in the public eye attacking people. There's a kind of shamelessness that I think... I was talking to somebody just today about a a personal situation they were having with a really narcissistic family member who has this power of coming in and just doing shameless thing after shameless thing, and everybody else thinks they're the problem. Because what should I do? And what he does is to come in and say, why are you being so unforgiving? Didn't Jesus say 70 plus 7? And it's just, you get to a point where that kind of confidence causes normal people to start thinking, I must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're just using that to just plow right through with this. And until people get to the point where they will say, no, we're not going to tolerate this. We keep having it. 
Yeah, I think, too, you add to that this lack of expectation we actually have because we've seen so much. I think there's this really dark Darwinian view of Christian ministry that says, really, you can't expect anything other than this. You're always going to have. When this kind of everybody's a sinner, including ministry leaders, people are going to sin, and there are all kinds of things one can be restored for. But a pattern of using one's ministry authority to abuse power, which is the case here and in in all these other situations that we're talking about, I think is permanently 1 Timothy 3 disqualifying. I've listened to some people who are following people like Brian Houston, and their sentiment is, I'm a sinner too. So Mm -hmm. when they see what they believe is this confidence of walking in forgiveness and walking in redemption, and they think this is the gospel because we are forgiven and we are redeemed, there's a part of them that feels absolved. If Brian Houston and I follow him, if he's the one and he's my pastor, then anything I say and do is also forgiven and absolved. And it starts to have a ripple effect for what it means to be Christian, what it means to confess sin, what it means to actually repent, which I think is something we've lost entirely. What does repentance look like? And I was really thinking, when was the last time I saw true repentance in leadership? Mm -hmm. I couldn't think of one. I couldn't think of an example. The story I always think of when someone asks that question is the Profumo affair which is a a story that took place in England in the 1960s. This guy, John Profumo, he was a parliamentarian. He was a member of the aristocracy, and he was having an affair with a very young girl. I want to say she was like 18, 19 years old, who was also having an affair with quite a few other British higher-ups and was a Russian agent. And the whole thing was exposed publicly. He was humiliated. He was run out of office. It was an incredibly sad and disgusting story. And Perfumo's response, he apologized. He made a very sincere public apology and basically went to work a couple years afterwards, went to work volunteering for an organization called Toynbee Hall, which was like a poorhouse, basically, working with the, the poor and the homeless and all of that, and devoted the rest of his life every day got on the bus and went and served at at Toynbee Hall. And later in life, he was honored for it. The the queen recognized decades of service at this place. And Margaret Thatcher invited him to be a guest of honor at her 80th birthday. And you have this guy who had been humiliated decades before and then sits next to the queen at Margaret Thatcher's birthday. And then the day after that, he got up and he went to work and he went to serve the poor at Toynbee Hall. Mm. That was, and it's one of the very few modern examples of something like this, of somebody having this sort of awakening of conscience and recognizing, you know what, I'm going to withdraw from public life and I'm going to give my life away for others. And when the queen invites you to Buckingham Palace, you don't say no, I'd rather not be part of public life. You go and you receive the honor. But you can't imagine that this guy did any of that with that kind of expectation on the back end of it. And it's shockingly rare to hear of those kinds of stories from abusive leaders and disgraced leaders inside the church. I'm also aware that pastors in general, especially those who are groomed into the pastorate, don't know any other way to be. And, And I think even if someone said to a Brian Houston, hey, why don't you think about running a homeless shelter? Or why don't you think about, I don't know, doing something else with your life? 
I don't know if he would be able to do that. I I think the same with other pastors. When you think about the succession crisis, there's a sense of they just don't Mm -hmm. know any other way to be. So that adds another layer to, I guess I'll go start another church because that's all Mm -hmm. they know how to do. And it works. That's the big thing. Mm. They're going to keep selling it because people are going to keep buying it. When we ask, like, why does this keep happening? Why do these guys keep returning to ministry? Why do they keep starting things up? I think there's a difficulty for some of them. I think this is particularly true with evangelicals. There's a difficulty in just restarting. Driscoll has had a really hard time recapturing sort of the magic of Mars Hill and rebuilding. Mm -hmm. James McDonald has had a very hard time rebuilding. It'll be interesting to see with Brian Houston. I I actually think there's some theological reasons for that because of the nature of what evangelical pastors present themselves to be, especially these guys. Driscoll wasn't just a pastor doing something transactional with his members. He was saying, I embody this stuff. I am the brand. That was the famous quote from Driscoll. There's this implicit promise that as the megachurch leader, you embody everything that you're preaching and, and promising. And so it's hard for them to go back to where they were, whereas with, for instance, with a lot of prosperity preaching and in, in that world, there is a kind of a transactional thing. And those pastors can come out and go, see him just like you. Mm-hmm. And it it works to just to pick up where they left off. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see with Houston how that goes, because Houston has a foot in both worlds. He's known as a as an evangelical by some people, but he also comes out of a Pentecostal world and preaches a prosperity light message oftentimes. I have no idea how this will go. Mike, I, you've looked at this a lot. What is going through the mind? I think about the person who marries somebody who has had awful divorces seven times before. And the question is, what do you think is so special about you that's going to keep this from? What does a person who goes to, say, Mark Driscoll's new church in Arizona and can look at what's happened at Mars Hill or somebody who goes to the Brian Houston new church and look, what are they? what story are they telling themselves as to why this time is different? I think most people who show up like what they hear, they like what they experience, they like the persona and the environment of the church and all of that. And they say, yeah, I just don't, I just don't think about that stuff. Mm. I don't dwell on it. Haters are going to hate. And I think the advantage that, that Driscoll found and tapped into was that he did tap into this highly politicized, polarized message Shortly after launching this church, a couple of years in, COVID comes, he's got this divisive issue of we're going to stay open and we're not going to mask and the government's not going to tell us what to do. And then the 2020 election came along and CRT was a big boogeyman at the time and he was preaching against that. And so he just, he found these wedge issues mm. and that gave his people who wanted to stay with him the ability to say, oh, the people that are attacking him now, it's a bunch of Seattle liberals that they want to wear masks and vote for Joe Biden. So of course they Mm -hmm. hate Mark Driscoll. And I think that's a lot of it. People certainly find some reason to dismiss the story altogether. Mm. That's a good point. Norman Lear passed away uh, this week, and I grew up watching Norman Lear television shows. I'm sure the two of you all did as well. Nicole, you had some thoughts in remembering Norman Lear, remembering his legacy on television. When I think of Norman Lear, I naturally go to good times. And I think of Mm. 
just how important and impactful it was that he, Norman Lear, was one of the first people to show a full black family with a mother and a father and more than one child. And yes, they were living in the project. And yes, they went through difficulties, which I think were demonstrated in really amazing ways. I just, I felt like this was a start. Now, it wasn't without flaws. It was not without controversy. The fact that he could create an entire show on the realism of the black family without one black writer, without one black advisor, is the reason why, arguably, some say that Esther Roll and uh, John Amos left, because they just... They couldn't take this stereotype, this constant playing of JJ's dynamite. They just, they were so exhausted of that and the fact that there wasn't enough room for their own voices to display their own reality of the Black family that they left. But I still think you cannot have a Cosby show without good times. Today, I don't think we would start any show about some particular demographic without that demographic in the room. But I think it's pretty amazing that he was able to do that and that he thought to do that in the 70s. Yeah, the story I always love about Norman Lear is with the whole sort of backstory to All in the Family and the creation of Archie Bunker, this notoriously bigoted and toxic figure. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is you mention Archie Bunker and everybody smiles and everybody laughs. Mm -hmm. And it to me, Bunker kind of, Archie Bunker kind of embodies what was brilliant about Lear almost accidentally brilliant about Lear. Lear was a very left-wing guy, mm -hmm. and he really created that show with Archie Bunker as the villain and the other characters being the enlightened liberals around him that had to put up with Archie's nonsense. But because he was a good writer, because he was a good artist, he humanized Archie Bunker, and everybody who watched that show knew that guy. Like I could tell mm -hmm. you, I could yeah. tell you in my life who the Archie Bunker was in my life, who I roll my eyes at and he drives me insane, but I also love that person. And it made Archie Bunker one of the most popular characters in all of television. And again, there's so many other stories down the line where you get these sort of almost holy fool kind of figures who are deeply familiar. And I think that was the brilliance of Lear. He knew how to bring you into the homes of families and real stories, these flawed figures that you recognized. You saw yourself in them and you saw people you loved in them. I think he gave us the best television theme songs yes. in oh, yeah. all That's of so history. True. All in the family, good times, <laughs> the Jeffersons, different strokes, facts of life. These are really good theme songs. <laughs> the, the negative part is that for all of that that you're talking about, the humanity that he brought in terms of the writing, which is where it was at its best. I still think of, and I haven't seen this since I was a little kid, but when Edith died and Archie finds her slipper under the bed, it's just such a powerful human, just stays with you. Where it was awful is where he became the, the preachiest. If, if you, the Maud episode where she has she gets pregnant late in her forties and has an abortion, those sorts of episodes that he would write had the feeling of, and now a very special episode of, <laughs> with giving you the talking points, and it just yep. didn't work. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He played the characters so much to the extremes. There were certain mm -hmm. times where you're just like, really. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We got it. We got your message. But it was family dynamics. I yeah. loved the drawing out of family dynamics. And I was fast forwarding to today with YouTube and Netflix. We just don't, 
the dysfunctions mm-hmm. that are played out today are so just yeah. crazy that we don't have that quote unquote normalized family dysfunction that Lear was able to produce, which is delightful and sad. So he's also he's from an era when there were three networks. Yeah. And everyone sat around and watched. Yeah, everyone sat around and watched. And and again, the brilliance of the writing was that you might not identify with these people or the ideas that they have or the world the worlds that they lived in, but he drew you in with humor and humanity and do yourselves a favor over Christmas break here, find an old Dorman Lear sitcom and watch a few episodes. You'll be glad you did. Or just listen to the theme song. Or just listen to the theme song. <laughs> and, and if I were in charge here at the Bulletin, we would be going out with Moving On Up from the Jefferson. Oh, theme. yes. Do the east side. <laughs> Copyright restrictions. Be what they are. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>